every single Sunday on my way to the church house, I have someone talking to me. And that person tells me, I have nothing to say. I shouldn't even come. And it's a battle. But here I am. May God help me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 is our scripture text this morning. This is the 11th sermon in a series of messages. We've been going through the little letter, the amazing little letter of 1 Peter. And I'll be reading down to verse 20. And just as a note, the, the last section, 18, 19, and 20, will only briefly be handled by me this morning. I'm going to concentrate on a Christian approach to slavery next Sunday. This Sunday we're going to I'll briefly address it, but uh, we'll focus this, this morning on verses 13 through 17. This is the word of God. It is always true. It's unshakable. Let's give our attention to it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let us pray. Father, your word has been read, and your servant needs the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Each of us, brothers and sisters, we need ears to hear. We didn't bring them with us. We need you to give them to us. Eyes to see, our natural eyes are not sufficient. Wonderful things in your law. Otherwise, Lord, these words are hateful to us. They are opposite to our nature. But by your power, God, they might be life to us. And refreshment, healing to our bones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For my wife's 50th birthday, which was last May, She's not here this morning, so I can tell you her birthday. <clears throat> we were able to go on a cruise last month. Now, if you ask, how is it that it took you almost nine months to celebrate your wife's birthday, I would reply to you, life is busy. We have a lot of kids, and it's expensive. But our trip, trip took us to the Bahamas, and the first stop was Nassau, where... We had no map and no cell phone. 
you know, your phone doesn't work in a foreign country. So she knocked on the door of the police station and said, may I have a map? And the police said, yes. And I said, honey, we can do this. We came of age before the internet. <laughs> so we found two cross streets. It's amazing how this works. We found it on the map. We saw it in real life. And we said, here we go. And wouldn't you know it, without a map, without, or now we had a map without a real plan in, in, a, in a foreign city, we, we wound up seeing the places that she thought we should go see anyway, just by the, I don't know, maybe there's tourism angels that directed us, or the Holy Spirit, one of the two. The second stop on the cruise line had us on the island of Eleuthera, which is one of the islands in the Commonwealth of Bahamas. Now, Eleuthera is from the Greek word for freedom. It was given this name by the British governor of Bermuda in 1647. He arrived there with a band of colonists who came to be known as the Eleuthera Adventurers. I'm going to tell you more about this group of people next week. Now, for most people, traveling to an idyllic place like Eleuthera, Bahamas, is the epitome of, of adventure and freedom. So I did a little research. You know, you, you want to research where you're traveling to after the fact, not beforehand and have a plan, God forbid. Here's what the websites say about Eleuthera. Miles of glistening white and pink sandy beaches. Rolling acres of pineapple farms. A place that is off the beaten path, free from crowds and casinos. A place where you can be free from all the world's troubles to appreciate nature's gifts and to slow down enough to enjoy it all. Anybody want to go? <laughs> all right. <clears throat> we can see it in our mind's eye. The problem with this definition of freedom, and it is appealing, is it overpromises and underdelivers. Now, there's the very practical reality that I needed a vacation to get over my vacation. The other thing is, I came back from the vacation pretty much the same guy as I was when I left. If you're going to a place like Eleuthera, which means freedom, to be free from all the world's troubles, you best not go because you are part of the troubles in the world. Or, as the saying goes, if you, wanted, if you find a perfect church, please don't join it. You will ruin it. To quote a wise philosopher, Buckaroo Banzai, wherever you go, there you are. As it turns out, it's a lot harder than we realize to escape ourselves. The solution in Scripture is far better. In this amazing little hope-filled letter in the New Testament, Peter promises exactly that, escape from the self. That's true. God's promise in 1 Peter is that true freedom is actually possible. But it only comes from God. Only God can make you free. Only God in Christ can make you a free people and can land you on freedom's island. 
And he does so through something called the new birth. It's not just a theme in John chapter 3 when Jesus meets Nicodemus. It's the controlling heartbeat of this letter. First Peter, the letter, the first epistle of Peter, is all about the results of the new birth and how it changes everything in our lives. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very first sentence of this mighty little letter. And then Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which we're going to celebrate as a church in just a couple of weeks on Easter Sunday. Now, what is this new birth? The new birth is a transition from one phase of human existence to another. It's overseen by God as kind of a strange combination of mother and midwife, where Almighty God, the Father, through Jesus Christ the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, effects a transition from a realm of existence that is subject to death and slavery to one which is characterized by freedom. But leaving my island analogy aside, it's not a destination that you can travel to. It's more like a way of life, a, a kind of existence that's deep. There's a connection you have to a frame of thinking and measuring the world that is shattered in the new birth. And what results is a new mode of existence, a new frame of thinking, a new mindset, a new man, the scriptures say, that brings with it a whole new orientation, a new identity. And it's a connection that isn't just between you and Jesus. My dad reminds me, and I've, I've said this to you before from this pulpit, Christianity is not a solo sport. It's a connection that's formed with every other brother and sister. Peter calls it the brotherhood several times in this letter. Peter loves the church. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. That's Peter's faithful confession. So it's a connection that's formed corporately as well. You can't make it alone. You also can't make it by going from church to church to church to church, which is more or less going it alone because no one ever knows you long enough to make any difference in your life. Pastors can't make it either by going from church to church to church to church, which we love to do, by the way. I said it's not a, a place, but Peter talks about a place in the beginning of the letter. He talks about this letter is written to the elect exiles, 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, if you look at that in your Bible, of the dispersion. And then he mentions five cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. <clears throat> so those are actual cities in the ancient Roman Empire. Scholars are divided as to exactly what they represent and why he chose them. Some of them show up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Some of these are the cities that were assembled in that place, but not all of them. 
The key word, though, is dispersion. Dispersion is a geographic reference from the Old Testament. You need to read your Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament. And this geographic reference signals the place to which the Jews in the Old Testament were exiled from Israel, the Holy Land, the Promised Land, into Babylon, for example. But Peter is taking that geographic reference and giving it a spiritual meaning. The dispersion is what happens with the new birth. And you don't move an inch. You go with a prayer, with faith, from being at home in the world to being in exile and in dispersion. Your address might not change. But all of the sudden, what was home is now a foreign land. And what was strange Heaven, God, the things of God and the people of God is now family and your final destination. So the bad news is that the old home retains some of its pull. The appeal Think of the the appeal of your mother's cooking. It's hard to give that up. Your old relationships, the jokes, the inside conversations, the places you'd hang out, the things that you do, the memories that you formed, the things that you went through, men and women who were by your side. That's hard to give up. And so Peter writes to the dispersion, not just in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, but then in Asia, but in Glassboro. Because like them, we have been relocated without moving an inch with a whole new identity. And it's tempting to go back. God has chosen you by the new birth. Now you need to maintain this identity. You need to invest in it. He says this several times. He says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Chapter 1, verse 13. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need to concentrate, fix your gaze, focus, Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This new birth is not an easy path. I don't know if someone told you being a Christian was going to be easy. It is not. It is a narrow path. It is a jagged path. There are many obstacles on the path and there are adversaries that interrupt your journey, sometimes by surprise, in the middle of the night. And so this requires intense, concentrated effort, purifying our souls. He's cleansed us. We need to recommit ourselves on a daily basis, renewing our faith 
through the means of grace, word, sacrament, prayer. The lifestyle of renewal is the title of my sermon. You are God's free people. Now we need to live like it. As God's free people, we need to live free. So what does that look like? First of all, and this is going to sound like a contradiction, free people are slaves of God. Free people are servants of the Lord. You see this in my text in verse 16. Take a look. Live as people who are free. That's one word in the original. Free people. So live as free people. Chapter 2, verse 16. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There it is right there. That's my first point. What is a free person? What do free people look like? We're servants or slaves, bondservants of God. So far in this letter, Peter has described you as a Christian in several ways. You're an obedient child, 114. You're a redeemed sinner, 119. You're a believer in God, 121. You're born again. I've talked about that this morning. That's 1-3 and 1-23. You're a chosen and a precious stone. We saw that a couple weeks ago. That's 2, 4, and 5. You're a holy priesthood, a royal nation, and a people of his own possession. And now you are called a bondservant who is free. It's a strange contradiction. How can a free people be in servitude? Your answer to this question will reveal a lot about how you see the world. If you think religion is a kind of slavery or bondage or servitude that you choose, and I'd really rather not choose that, thank you very much, because I don't want to give up my freedom. If that's how you think, you are gravely in error. See, Christianity, for many people, is a dogma. It's a doctrine that imprisons. It's stifling to my creativity, to my individuality, to being inspired to be who I want to be or who who God made me to be, even. In fact, one term for atheism is free thinker. If that didn't make the point clearly enough. But if, as I said, this is how you see things, you believed a lie, and it's one which is very old. The very first temptation in the garden, Eve and the serpent. Of the, of the many things that the serpent did to the woman at that point, he suggested, planted a seed of doubt in her mind that God was not good and that she was not free. And that God in being stingy, was actually holding something back from her, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if she ate of it, she would have what God didn't want her to have, but which would make her really free. That's actually the 
explicit teaching of the Mormon church. They so reinterpret that temptation. Just a little note as you think about some of the religions that are out there. But the truth is that that's presented as a, as a temptation to sin. God didn't want Eve, he wasn't keeping her back from something. He wanted her to stay a creature instead of trying to climb the ladder to become the creator. He wanted her to do what, where, she, where she would thrive the most, which is as a creature made in the image of God, thriving under the guidance and goodness of God, according to the commands of God. So we have a, really a parting of the ways. Either you believe freedom is defined by being far from God and defining your own reality for yourself, and that takes a hundred different versions and forms in society today. Or you believe what Scripture teaches, which is freedom is, is defined by following God and being his servant and being in service to the Lord, being a slave of God. There's a famous British saying, maybe you've heard of it, the king is dead, long live the king. This is kind of cool if you're an Anglophile or you're into like the British monarchy and stuff like this. Sort of a cool saying, you know, if you like to watch shows with knights, and dragons, castles. But there's a truth that it contains that we need to pay attention to this morning. There's never a time when there is no king. The king is dead. Long live the king. Well, how does that apply to us? You're never free. There's never a time in human existence where you are free. You're in bondage, in slavery to someone or something. Even if in your mind you've cooked up this, this, this idea that you're in the free thinker society and you've thrown off all restraint, and you're your own person. Even then, you are in bondage to the idol of self. That's the Christian perspective. So if one master or overlord in your life passes away, lordship does not pass away. We're just looking for the new king. We're looking for the new ruler. You're never free from obligation to authority. You're either under God's authority and are his servant or you're in bondage to some other king or lord. No matter how beautiful or appealing that lord may appear. And we want to take a, a little bit of a closer look at this in Paul's letter to the Romans. So please turn to Romans 6. Romans is the first theology of the New Testament, at least in the way we have our Bibles collected before us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are Gospels. Acts is a history describing the early church. And then we have Romans. 
this mighty statement of gospel truth. And in verse 16 of chapter 6, we read this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now it's a parable, so then he explains, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness and life. So there we have it. Paul says there's never a moment in human existence where slavery is not the defining paradigm for you. The question is, who is your Lord? You know, there's a, a way to share the gospel with someone who's a, who's a seeker or curious or maybe a skeptic, and you ask them, do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life? To, who's on the throne of your heart? And, and sometimes the picture is, is portrayed as an empty throne. But the throne is never empty. The question is, who's on it? Is it Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords on that throne, who all power in heaven on earth has been given to me because he broke the chains of death and rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heavenly places, our great high priest passing through the heavens, seated now in a throne of grace, accessible to all? Or is it the shriveled, stingy self that's on the throne, punishing, exacting, guilt and shame? That's it. Those are the only two choices. I'd commend Romans 6 to you as a, as a further study, perhaps this afternoon, if you want to go a little deeper into what we're talking about this morning. Back to our text in 1 Peter 2. My point is that God's free people are servants of God. We're servants. That's been my point. I've been uh, emphasizing this. We see it in verse 16. Live as servants or slaves of God. Look at verse 13 of our text. Be subject, how? For the Lord's sake to every human creation or every human creature or every human institution. There's different ways you could phrase that there. Your submission, or rather subjection, which is a little less personal, your subjection is for the Lord's sake, because you're a servant of the Lord. For the Lord's sake. He did it, I'm going to do it. He's asked me to do it, I'm going to do it. He's enabled me to do it, I'm going to do it. For the Lord's sake. It also shows up in the mindset of suffering that you adopt in verse 19. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, Peter says, you endure suffering. You're, you're God's free people. And so that means you're living for the Lord. Not by, you're not marching to the beat of a different drummer here. And so as you're agonizing in your suffering, whatever it may be, you're mindful of the Lord. He's watching me. So there's a fear there. He's watching you. That's not a comfortable feeling. He loves you. There's an attraction there. There's comfort there. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's with you, mindful of the Lord. God's free people. 
And in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Notice honor brackets those two things, love and fear, which are at the heart of the Christian disciples walk are at the center. Love the brotherhood and fear God. You see, we're free servants of God. I'm going to address this more next week, but I want to briefly mention that Roman slavery, I've been mentioning slavery several times, first century Roman slavery is different than 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, American chattel, man-stealing, sinful slavery. Now, I actually think all slavery is sinful. More on that next week. But when we read the Bible, we need to make sure that we're translating words in context. So when, when our context, and our, our version uses the word servant here, Instead of the word slave, the, the word doulos could be translated either way. And ESV is softening slavery because they understand that the American, mostly English-speaking, English Bible, American Western readers are going to be tempted to import an understanding of slavery from, say, the South in the 1800s and earlier that isn't exactly congruent to what was going on in Rome. Slavery in Rome or servitude was, was more a function of kind of the way the economy worked. And I realize that's also true in the South, but a Roman slave could, could get his freedom. He could own property. He could occupy high positions, and it wasn't race-based. There are parallels, but there are significant differences. We need to keep that in mind. So... We're seeing that we're free people, God's free people. And the first characteristic of God's free people is what? You're a servant of God. I want to end this point with an illustration. Uh, This might appeal to people who like Disney cartoons. (laughs) Aladdin's magic lamp, anyone? Now, how does the story go? He, He comes into possession of this lamp, And he rubs the lamp, and out pops a genie. And what does the genie offer him? Three wishes. And so Aladdin wishes for one thing, and then he wishes for another thing. I think it's a castle at some point, and of course he gets the girl. I don't think he needs a wish for that one. And I think his third wish wishes the bad guy away pretty good selection of wishes if you ask me. But the reason I'm illustrating this or the reason I'm telling you this story is not to focus on Aladdin but focus on the genie. The genie was trapped in the bottle. And Aladdin was the instrument of the genie's freedom. And with a simple rub by that boy the genie was free. Well, how did you come to your freedom? You've been trapped in a tiny little space and you thought it was freeing in there, but it was actually quite cramped and it was killing you. And your Aladdin 
didn't just rub the lamp. He shed his precious blood for your sins. You see, you deserve to be under the sentence of death. He took that upon himself. It's as if Aladdin went into the lamp and stayed there. And not just for your sins, but for the sins of all of God's people. And so you now have been set free from one bondage to another, from the bondage of the lamp to the bondage of someone far greater than Aladdin, someone who loves you and isn't just giving you, isn't asking you to fulfill his wishes, but he is giving you his entire world. And you're riding like kings and queens over the earth, which belongs to you. The second point this morning, and I'll be more brief on this, is not only are God's free people servants, we've seen that, but God's free people are to live honorable lives among the Gentiles. And much of this passage is taken up with describing that kind of life in some very specific ways. But to get a picture here, you need to rewind back one verse to verse 12 of chapter 2. Take a look. Keep your conduct, that's the key word here, among the Gentiles, honorable. And everything else in this, actually, not only this chapter, but the next chapter, flows from chapter 2, verse 12. It's called a heading verse. So 2.12 gives you the program for everything else that follows in the rest of chapter 2. You're talking about the emperor and the governor and slaves and their masters. And in chapter 3, husbands and wives, wives and husbands, and in the body of Christ. This conduct, you see, in 2.12, is to be honorable, meaning fine or precious, attractive in outward appearance, suited to the highest purpose of a thing. God is calling you to the highest level of behavior. And it's, it's kind of like walking a tightrope because it's among the Gentiles that you are to live this way. Gentiles not meaning non-Jews, non-Christians. All who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're to walk this tightrope, this life, that they might see as honorable. Likely they won't. but you're to try. Christianity is not hidden under a bushel. No. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works. We are not a retreatist, escapist religion. We are a marketplace in the neighborhood, downtown faith. We're a billboard faith. And we're it together. So we're to conduct ourselves together as the brotherhood in a way that is at the highest standard of human existence. We're to be the best specimens of humanity. And many will see that 
and be angry because they are actively with buckets throwing overboard all of the treasures of God that he has given to them in their lives. Some will notice and they'll say, wow. I had no idea that's what it meant to be a Christian. Sometimes I've asked people, I said, do you actually know enough people that don't know Jesus? Do you know them well enough that they could actually say, you know, you really do live differently. Like, they're going to have to notice it. Then you're going to have to be close enough that they're going to actually want to say that. How many people do you have in your life like that? If the answer is, actually, many Christians, none. None. Some of us have a few people like that. God's free people are living honorable lives among the Gentiles. This is my second point. Jesus talks about good wine, good soil, good seed, good salt, and good pearls, all in similar terms as honorable conduct. The kind of people we are to be should look like the best wine that most people save till last. We're, we're shocking people because we're bringing the best wine first. As I said, this way of life will not always bring praise from unbelieving people around you, especially when your new way of life undermines their old way of life, and especially if they know you. A prophet is honored everywhere he goes except at home. And there's a, teens, there's a big tendency here where you're, you're starting to get some traction in your Christian life. Okay, this is for teenagers, particularly as you go away to college. If you go away to college or to your job, a trade or whatever, and you come back home, all of a sudden, you fall back into the same habits. You think, I, th- I thought I was was starting to get some some traction in my faith. What happened? I want to make two comments here about living honorable lives, and then we'll conclude. I want you to remember, as you live this honorable life amongst the Gentiles, God is only asking you to give to others the things that he's given to you. Grace. That shows up twice at the end of my text. It's a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. All he's asking you to do is open up your heart and let pour out what he has poured in. You don't need to worry or plan or plot or scheme or manuscript out what you're going to say when they bring you before magistrates and authorities and rulers, the Holy Spirit of God will give you what you need to say in that very moment. The very thing you didn't deserve, honor, praise, goodness, value, is the thing the Gentiles don't deserve. 
That person who's an enemy of the cross does not deserve salvation, and neither did you. That person who's living a perverted lifestyle or, 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 or angry at God and attacking the servants of God, undermining the church, blogging, posting, podcasting, whatevering, neither did you. But I think the thing that always catches people's eye is freedom. I love the story in the Gospels when asked about tax. Jesus, if there's anywhere where Jesus is laughing in the Gospels, it's here. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Matthew 17, he said yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, Peter, first. What do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? He said, from others. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. But I don't want to offend them. So go take your fishing pole, throw it into the lake. The first thing that bites, reel it up, open its mouth, and take out two coins. That's our tax. Translation, Jesus to Peter, I got this. We're going to live such honorable lives among the Gentiles. They will not know what to do with us except to kill us. And they did. So we fear God, but we honor the king who is supreme. We do good as a Christian witness to silence the ignorance of foolish men, but by doing so, we also honor governors who were sent to punish evil and reward good. Hopefully. You love the brotherhood, but if you're a first century slave, you submit to your masters with all respect, even when they are corrupt, crooked, and cruel bosses and overlords. You are full of grace when you endure sorrows, but you do it while suffering unjustly by his gracious power for his divine approval, and not just because you're being punished for being bad. Well, people of freedom, God's free people, this is not as easy to come by as we would wish. In fact, we've seen this morning that there is no real freedom, not in any sense that most Americans would imagine. On the contrary, the king is dead. Long live the king. Here comes the new boss, same as the old boss. We're always serving someone. There is no third choice. I know that every one of you would benefit from a trip to the Bahamas. I'm not against vacations. The pace of life, the tranquil setting can be refreshing, but it is still a place, because it's on planet Earth, where sin reigns in the hearts of men. Now, I mentioned the island of Eleuthera in my opening comments. There was a period in Eleuthera's history where it was known as a haunt of pirates. You've got to love a good pirate story to land the sermon. So pirates and their cousins engaged in something called wrecking. They tried to wreck the ships and, stake, and steal the cargo. You know, lives uh, were lost, obviously, but that was their business. And in order to do this, 
the pirates would set up false lights on the coast as if it were a lighthouse, except they'd mount the light on the back of a donkey. And so ship's captains and the navigators would see the light, which is not a lighthouse at all, but it's a lantern mounted on the back of a donkey, and they'd steer towards it, and then the ship would run aground on a reef or a shoal. Setting your ship's navigation lights of freedom on a Caribbean island or any other human destination or goal will ultimately end in disaster. You will shipwreck your life. You are not free. You are headed for the rocks. And Jesus is telling you this morning, I am the only one who can give you freedom because I'm the only one who shed his precious blood, which is more precious than gold, for your sins. I'm the only one. If you're living as a servant of God, on the other hand, and his word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, no matter how shaky your life may seem right now, you will find the harbor. He will bring you safely home. And on the day of his return, even though you've had trouble in this life, in the life to come, you will finally have freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you love your church and you speak to us just where we need it. So we're asking that the word which has been preached will be brought home to each and every one of our hearts. In particular, I pray if there's someone who does not yet believe, who's still wavering with questions or uncertainty, I pray that that man or woman, boy or girl would right now pray with me, Jesus, I am tired of being a slave to my sin. I want to be free And you're the only one who can do it. For if the Son of Man sets you free, only then are you truly free. So Lord, give freedom to that sinner and to the one who is struggling this morning, to the person who is finding himself continually going back and back again to his or her sin, whether it be mental anxiety or some addiction or some other thing. I pray, Lord, that you would visit your church with new and fresh spiritual power. Do not leave us, Lord be with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.